What does freedom mean to an 11-year-old boy born into slavery? Asiya Dujan will join us to talk about her new novel, Washington Black. Are termites edible? That's just one question I had for Lisa Marganelli. She joins us to talk about her new book, Underbug. John Williams will join us to talk about what's going on in the literary world. Plus, my colleagues and I will talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Asiya Dujan joins us now from British Columbia. Her new book is called Washington Black. It is reviewed on our cover by Colm Toybean, and it is her second novel to be longlisted for the Man Booker Prize. So I'm very excited to talk to her. Asiya, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the title character. It's an eponymous novel. Who is Wash Black? Washington Black. His name is George Washington Black, but everybody who knows him calls him Wash. He's an 11-year-old field slave who was born into slavery on a Barbados plantation. And he's somebody who's known no other life. And so when he gets unexpectedly uh, invited to live in the quarters of his master's brother, a man called Christopher Wilde, he's, he's utterly terrified. But this ends up completely transforming his life. Because Christopher Wilde is a very unusual for a white person at that time and in that place. What What is he like? So Christopher Wilde is the black sheep of his his very wealthy um, English family. And it's a, a family that's had a long uh, history in the slave trade through his mother's side. But he is, you know, he's, he's entirely different. He's a naturalist. He's an explorer. He's an inventor. And he's also an abolitionist. And so he's somebody who's, you know, just completely unlike any other white man that Washington has ever met. And how does their relationship begin and, and then evolve? Christopher Wilde is the brother of the new master, the new planter at Faith Plantation. And he he arrives on the plantation with his brother, who's, who's there to take up the helm from their uncle who's passed away. And so... Um, his role there is that he's trying to, he's been working on a, a sort of, you know, a very rudimentary aerial contraption mm-hmm. and that he calls the cloud cutter. And he's been working on the design of it for a while. And he sees in this trip to Barbados an opportunity to, I guess, in some way have, have free labor to actually put the craft together, mm-hmm. but also, uh, you know, a place to, to launch it from. And how does that re- relationship between Washington Black and, and Christopher Wilde develop over the course of the, of the novel? Christopher originally, um, who's called Titch in the novel, mm-hmm. so Titch chooses Washington to come and live in his quarters because the choice at first is fairly uh, sort of basic and, and almost in retrospect, you know, kind of a, a cruel reason, which is that he sees in Washington somebody who will make, you know, his, his weight will make for perfect ballast mm-hmm. uh, for his cloud cutter. But when Washington goes into his home and starts to become his assistant and assist him in, you know, because he's also a naturalist, so he's looking at the, the sea life and all of that, of that area, Washington becomes his assistant and is the one who's essentially left to document what they've done for the day. And he learns that he has a you know, really natural aptitude for 
drawing, mm-hmm. for making uh, depictions of of natural life and especially sea life. And so, it's a real gift that he that he gets in being obviously removed from you know from his previous life, and that he he understands that he he has something to offer the world, and this really gives him a sense of uh, his first stirrings of personhood and of being a fully realized human being. The book has its roots in a real historical incident. And I'm curious what drew you to it and how did the novel evolve from there? I had originally thought I was writing a novel about the Tichborne claimant trials, which, uh, just to give a bit of background, was this very infamous series of criminal trials in the 1860s and 1870s England in which the scion of a very wealthy family from the south of England, he went missing at sea. He was a bit of a dandy and, and uh, you know, just, a, just an all-around kind of ridiculous sort of person. Mm-hmm. But he ended up being shipwrecked off the coast of South America. But his mother, who was one of these, you know, very doting, aggressively attached mothers, uh, refused to believe that her beloved son was dead. And so she put notices in newspapers all around the world uh, looking for him. And she got a response from Australia, mm. which, um, which is very interesting, years later, um, from a place called Wagga Wagga. And um, it was from a man called Tom Castro. And he said, uh, you know, Mom, it's me. <laughs> Essentially, I've, I've been living in Australia. I've had to assume this name so that, you know, nobody... I guess he put it that you know he didn't want people to, you know, fortune hunters to be coming to him, and he said he'd been a been living as a butcher, but that he was ready to come home and and you know take up his mantle as you know the head of the estates. So it was a very kind of crazy story, but his mother was delighted, obviously. But the person that she sent down to make the identification of Tom Castro, just to ensure that it was actually her son, was a man called Andrew Bogle. And Bogle, uh, he was an ex-slave, and he had been taken off of a plantation in the Caribbean by a member of the Tichborne household several decades earlier, because I guess, you know, one of the the Tichborne men had been visiting a planter friend and had seen this young man and and taken a liking to him and then, you know, decided to bring him or steal him uh, away because he, he just took him back to the family estate in the south of England. And Bogle lived out the rest of his life uh, as a servant uh, in that estate hmm. uh, until his retirement in his 60s. And so I, you know, I really was very interested in this story and in telling it through the lens of, of Andrew Bogle. But when I started writing it, I realized that I was much more interested in, in the psychology of, of a person who, you know, had been born and raised into a, a very, you know, a very brutal life. Mm-hmm. And it would have felt very predetermined and preordained that you would have had a life of, of toil and and hardship. And that's just what your life was going to be until you know, it came to its, its probably early end and probably brutal end. Mm-hmm. Um, so to be taken out of that and brought into a place that just you know so different you know linguistically geographically racially and then living out that life and that i realized was what was very interesting to me and what kind of ghosts and and uh, 
pain and you know, what he have been carrying into this new life and and what were the hardships of this new life as well, as well as the pleasures of being free. So what did you retain from that original historical story? The themes, obviously, that particular aspect of it. But was there any, I mean, Tichborn, was that, did that become the nickname for Titch? I think that's pretty much the, the name Titch, as well as this this impulse to to show that shift in in a life for Andrew Bogle. Those were pretty much the only things that remained from the original story. But you did a lot of research for this novel, not just about that story, which sort of got left behind, but I mean, certainly into the development of hot air ballooning. Can you tell us a little bit about about the historical research involved in writing the book? I read very widely. And, you know, as you mentioned, I read everything from obviously books about slavery in the Caribbean and in Barbados in particular, to books about the history of aerial contraptions, so hot air ballooning. And there's a wonderful book by Richard Holmes called Falling Up, which yes. is essentially a history of hot air ballooning, which is just, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's so wonderful. And uh, books about exploration, the stirrings of exploration, Arctic exploration, and also about the invention of the first aquarium, and the history of how that came together was just, you know, just so fascinating. This is your third novel that's historic fiction. The first two were sort of mid-20th century. You went back kind of a, a, another 120 years at the beginning of this one. What draws you to writing about the past in your fiction? I think because we can see the ramifications of these histories. So it feels, in a sense, as though there's some closure, mm-hmm. and then it feels like it's, you know, I have a safe entrance into it. But it's almost like it's a way for me to explore issues I'm concerned about currently, you know, in in a way that feels, you know, like I understand how how it ended. So I think it would be very daunting for me to write a, a present day novel, and that's probably something that I should. I should try because mm-hmm. it, it would be such a challenge. But, you know, looking at Washington Black and the things that I was working through, it's, um, you know, ideas of racial inequalities and racial injustice and also people hardening themselves against the suffering of others. You know, these are things that we're obviously dealing with currently. Is that important to you, this idea of, of challenging yourself with each book? Is it that temptation then to turn to the present because it would be a challenge? paramount for me to always be changing gears and shifting and trying something new, whether that's structural or the material, the actual material I'm tackling. I feel I would be repeating myself if I kept tackling the same material, but probably be a good thing to try and write about the present because that would be so challenging. In between the novel Half-Blood Blues and this novel, you did write your first nonfiction book, Dreaming of Elsewhere, Observations at Home. Was that also about about challenge, sort of turning to nonfiction? Um, you know, somehow I, I didn't find that uh, to be a huge challenge. It felt like there was something quite natural about it. You know, I think it almost grew out of this kind of writing in a journal, sort of writing one's personal impressions. That's where it grew out of, and then obviously digging deeper into history to to kind of anchor these thoughts. But that felt 
completely natural. Somehow not not as much of a stretch as I thought it would be. What is Dreaming of Elsewhere about? So Dreaming of Elsewhere is kind of a suite of essays, but it's, it's just a, a larger essay about ideas of home and belonging and how, you know, how we can construct these for our, ourselves and they don't have to be imposed upon us and that, you know, belonging consists of many things and that we can, in a sense, choose our homes. You are writing as a Canadian writer, but also from uh, the perspective of a of an immigrant. Is it your your parents immigrated from Ghana, and you write about or explore themes of immigration and migration in your book? I'm just curious, how do you think your your perspective as a Canadian writer might differ from the way American writers write about these themes, which are also very present right now in, in contemporary literature? We always, or we were raised with this idea in Canada, you know, in the schools of as being distinct in that we are, they call it the cultural mosaic, as opposed to the melting pot Mm -hmm. of the United States, which, you know, always kind of feels a little bit um, self-congratulatory, I guess. Right. I'm writing very much from the perspective of uh, having grown up, you know, I'm, I'm a Canadian and the population of of black people in Canada has never been greater than like 2.5%. And I'm also a Western Canadian um, black woman, which is uh, rarer still. And so I've, I, I think, um, you know, I grew up on the prairies. I'm from Calgary, Alberta. Mm-hmm. And I grew up there in the 80s. So this was a time where there was very little diversity. Uh, I know it's quite a bit different now, but... And so I think this really did angle my perspective in that, you know, when it came to pursuing subjects for my books, I guess if I kind of look at them uh, from a distance, you know, I'm always looking for the story that's that's a little bit hidden. <laughs> that's the story that that hasn't been told, mm-hmm. the story about black people that is that hasn't been told. So my first novel was about a black township on the Alberta prairies, you know, on the in northern Alberta. And it had been, you know, there were all these little black townships on the prairies that had been established by uh, freed slaves who'd come up from Oklahoma uh, at the turn of the 20th century. And, and, you know, they were very much unwanted. And as a black Albertan, you know, I'd never heard of this story. I was astonished and shocked to uh, to pick up a book and see these pictures of black homesteaders and so that was really interesting to me because mm-hmm. it, you know I, I realized that the history of black people in Alberta you know went much deeper than you know the, the great immigration boom at the you know in the early 70s and so this was really fascinating to me and, and I really wanted to delve into that and I think that with every book there's the desire to show the piece of the story that, you know, that I certainly knew nothing about. Well, this is certainly a new and exciting story. There's a lot of buzz around this book, which is on our cover this week, reviewed by Colm Toybean. The book, again, is Washington Black by Essie Adujan. Essie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Pamela.
So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Lisa Marganelli joins us now from Maine. Her new book is called Underbug, an obsessive tale of termites and technology. Lisa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. You are not an entomologist, so you don't have to spend time with bugs, thinking about bugs, writing about bugs. Why did you? That is a question I've been asking myself for the last 10 years. I basically fell in with them and, and became more and more obsessed. Back in 2008, in August, I was asked to come on a termite safari by uh, Phil Hugenholtz, who's a geneticist, microbiologist, who was working with the Joint Genome Institute in Walnut Creek. And, and I had done a piece on his team's work for the Atlantic, but the, the piece was already out. And he said, do you want to come with us and gather you know, 10,000 termites in the deserts of Arizona? And I said, Sure. <laughs> and just for fun, thinking that that would be just a, you know, it was just a distraction from mm-hmm. my other work. And, um, and it turned out to that, that I sort of got sucked more and more into what makes these termites the way they are. How do they work as a superorganism? How do their, the microorganisms in their guts work with the termites? And then the termites work with each other to become so much more significant than their individual parts. Well, why? What did you see on that trip? Well, I guess my first little batch of termites was just this tiny little bunch of them clinging together, you know, kind of like uh, the game uh, Barrel of Monkeys. Like they just were all hooked on to each other. Each termite was about, it was like a child, a child's fingernail clipping, like very tiny, a little yucky, kind of beige. They're translucent exoskeletons, so you can see right through to their guts. And kind of undifferentiated. You know, a, a, an ant has sort of two wastes, which gives them this sort of uh, a snazziness. And cockroaches, which termites are descended from, have a big, glossy exoskeleton. But termites are just small and insignificant. The workers are eyeless and they're wingless. They have this kind of teardrop-shaped body. And all of these things, you know, sort of add up to a puzzle of how do these things survive and how do they have such an incredible influence on the landscape. And that, that I had the, the earliest glimmerings of that when I was in Arizona because termites in, a, in America are considered cryptic. They are underground or in wood. So they're very, very hard to find, and the geneticist never would have found them. But there was a, an entomologist along, and he would get a feeling of termites in the landscape, and he would just start twitching. I was driving a rental car, and I had him in the front seat. He would start twitching when he thought that there were termites. And I gradually realized that, you know, kind of wherever all the dead greenery, wherever everything has been kind of scoured away, that classic desert look Mm -hmm. means that there are termites. And, you know, at at one point, entomologists went out into the desert or in Arizona and New Mexico and measured, like, how much dirt termites are moving and how they're fertilizing that soil. And they found that the, the termites were moving something like 500 kilograms of dirt per hectare per year which is just kind of enormous, you know. If you could see it, all the dirt around you would be being carried around by termites. A moving walkway at the airport is disorienting, but if it was an entire carpet that was moving around you. You said that 
the entomologist started twitching when he sensed termites? I mean, did he have some kind of like spidey sense or was that yes. because really? Well, he had a spidey <laughs> sense. I mean, but he, but that's biologists who've worked in the field have all sorts. Uh, they are very attuned to what they're seeing and and they can sense both on a, a an objective way. And, and he was reacting objectively. He was looking at what was going on with the growth or what was going on with the decomposition of things around him. Um, he was looking at the potential places for termites to be, but he would just get excited. I mean, he's, he has a, a huge collection of termites in his lab in little alcohol vials. And, and, you know, finding termites is something he loves. I want to talk a little bit about the numbers and the scale and the age of termites, their history, because that's all pretty impressive, right? Like, right. how many termites are there on the planet relative to the number of human beings, for starters? Okay, I don't know the actual numbers, but a termite... You didn't do a, like a, a, yeah, a the census termite, count. The termite doesn't weigh very much. Mm-hmm. And one estimate says that for every 130-pound human, there are 1,300 pounds of termite. Now, the entomologists who do these things all argue about it. And so I got that from one entomologist, David Bignall. In London, but other other entomologists, even other entomologists in London, wildly disagree with that estimate. But that I think it just shows you that you know we we give no mind to termites They're, unless you want to kill them, unless they pop out of the side of your house and you want to kill them. We really don't think about them. But they are, you know, kind of running the world from underneath. They're you know underlords of a certain type. It's interesting because we go, I think, at least in America, and maybe it's mostly in the media, but I think also in general, from sort of an obsession with one pest to another. So for a while, it was bed bugs and, of course, ticks right now, mm-hmm. more recently, stink bugs, bees, although the absence of more than the presence of. But termites don't seem to register. Why is that? Termites do register when people want to call the exterminator and, you know, the exterminating business is big and about 49% of the papers that were written over the last 15 years were about termites are about how to kill them. Right. So, I mean, it's important not to underestimate the, the importance of the exterminating business and the, the just 27 species out of about 3000 that actually invade houses and eat things that humans care about. So on the one hand, they're a pest. And on the other hand, they are an intermittent pest. So they only hit certain parts of the country and, and you only really care about them if they're hitting your house. You don't so much care if they're hitting the next, you know, somebody else's house. So that's one thing. Uh, but they also, they haven't gotten the kind of glamour treatment that bees have gotten. You know, when bee scientists, bee scientists get money to do all kinds of things, like they feed cocaine to bees and then see if they exaggerate the amount of pollen that they found mm-hmm. in a distant, and they do. I mean, it's, you know, it's like, it's like bees go to the disco and do cocaine and then they exaggerate. So, <laughs> but they have all kinds of setups for doing tests on bees. And there are very few setups for doing, you know, there are special color wheels for doing tests on bees and special holders that you can just order from lab supply places. You can't do that with termites. They, the, the scientists who I was following over the past decade had mostly had to invent their own sorts of termite rodeos and and tracking systems. We worry about the fate of the bees, but I don't hear much worry about the fate of the termites. Is that because 
in general, they're flourishing? Or is that because they perhaps don't have as positive a role in terms of the ecosystem? And if I'm wrong on that last part, what is their positive role? Termites have an enormously positive role. I mean, one of the groups of scientists who I followed in the book, Rob Pringle and Corina Tarnita, he's an ecologist, she's a mathematical biologist at Princeton, they did this sort of modeling exercise and analysis of what's going on in fields across sub-Saharan Africa and found that the termites are incredibly influential in keeping that area green mm-hmm. and creating these hot spots of fertility that also basically support spiders and geckos and, and, and even elephants and giraffes who are drawn to this exceptionally sort of rich and tasty foliage that grows on top of the termite mound. So they are inc- incredibly influential around the world, but it's unseen. It's largely unstudied. And, you know, honestly, they haven't been seen as as charismatic as bees. Bees are pollinators, and we also see them as industrious insects. Ants are also seen as industrious, and termites are seen as kind of pests, even though the vast majority of termite species are not actually eating your house. They're off recycling detritus. So I I think it's unfair, but, you know, there's a little microorganism called crocosphera that that supplies a lot of the nitrogen to seawater. And, you know, we, we don't celebrate that. It's a, it, it makes the whole world go around. It mm-hmm. makes our, our oceans the way they are. But, but we, we don't celebrate the small and the microbial and the unseen. I, I don't think we really have brain space for it. On the other hand, we do go a little bit overboard with bees. But bees are, the, honey, the honeybee is definitely has, has issues in there, and bees are threatened in ways that we don't understand at this point. Their numbers are falling, some bees and some bees are not. But termites, we have almost no data on. Mm -hmm. So we know where termites come in, say a new species comes to Louisiana and starts to invade and and, shows up on, on exterminators' radar and the extension service there. But what we don't know is what termite species are falling. We don't, we don't count them. We really have no idea. There's one study that was done I think in Indonesia found that once the trees, the forest was cut down and land was replanted, they lost, the area lost something like 13 species of termites and just one or two survived. And one of the things is, is that the termites that are suited to living with human disturbance are also the ones that want to eat our houses. So in the future, we are going to influence or, or draw more pesty termites to us, which will make us think that the world is full of pesty termites, but this is not the case. You mentioned earlier that there are more than 3,000 species of termites. I think that's probably news to most of us. <laughs> Just think of termites as a kind of singular wood-eating creature. But you also said that they are descended from cockroaches. So are, are they a kind of cockroach? How are they different? They're not a kind of cockroach. They are evolved from cockroaches, basically 150 million or more years ago. Cockroaches were solitary insects, and they began to try to eat wood, but they couldn't digest it until they picked up some microbes that could digest the wood. Cockroaches molt their guts really frequently. They molt Mm -hmm. their their intestines, which means that they can't hold on to those microbes. So you can't take up residence in a log that you're going to eat unless you can be sure that you've got those microbes handy or else you'll starve quickly, you know, once you molt. So somehow or another, they began to share their intestinal material with each other. So they, trophallaxis, they began to drink these sort of dollops of, of what's called wood shake from each other's butts. And, 
and exchange fluids through the mouth. They, they, they do a ton of fluid exchange. And they appear to be having a pretty good time of it, too. So they began to do that, and, and their, their genetic material began to shift one way or another to so somewhere between the behavior and the genes. They ended up becoming social, and, which meant that they, they pool their eating, essentially. They pool their reproduction. That's all done by the king and the queen, or the, mostly the queen, or multiple queens. There's a lot of different ways of being a termite. And they also lost a lot of the things, the, the workers lost eyes and lost wings, all the things that would have defined them as a cockroach. And they became quite small. They have a soft exoskeleton. So they became a different thing. And they also, in a way, by becoming this sort of group of, of a couple million termites all collaborating, you know, their influence on the landscape became much larger. They also, you know, we don't know the exact size of a termite brain, but somehow they, because they have all sorts of feedback mechanisms amongst themselves, ranging from pheromones to sounds to touch to the way that they tune their own mounds, the mounds that are made in in Africa, may be tuned to resonant frequency so that they can essentially hear what's happening. They have a lot of different ways of sensing and communicating with each other that we, you know, that are totally invisible and inscrutable to us. But that allows them, in a sense, to have a, a sort of a cognitive capacity on the landscape, which we do not understand at all. You know, that's, <laughs> that's way out there. But there is some level at which, as a group, they mm-hmm. have a kind of swarm intelligence. The hive mind. Yeah. We think of cockroaches as kind of like the, the great survivors on the planet, having evolved so many years ago and, and continuing to plague us. Are termites similarly hardy and are exterminators effective at killing these things with pesticides and other measures? Or is it, are they sort of constantly evolving to overcome our efforts to kill them off? That's a complicated question. So the termites are evolving. It's really hard to kill a termite with a biological control because termites are, have an incredible combination of immune systems, one of them being kind of a social immune system where they spread their feces on the walls and they, they groom each other in ways that keep biological agents from infecting them. We have had in the past very strong termite pesticides, which I guess got into the dirt. So those are not used anymore. So Mm -hmm. in a sense, the humans created chemicals that were very, very strong to kill the termites and then had to dial back on the chemicals rather than the termites outwitting us. But there's other research that termites are being used for. And I imagine some of that perhaps interests you more than the exterminating side. How are researchers in robotics and AI using termites in their research? So I started following a, uh, or visited a researcher in Namibia named Jeffrey Scott Turner, who's actually with SUNY in New York. And he had been studying how termites build mounds for about 20 years. And then he hooked up with a bunch of roboticists from Harvard, led by the principal investigator, Radhika Nagpal at the Wies Institute, and Radhika's team builds robots, but they also observe termites to figure out how they can kind of get inspiration for building algorithms that would do either autonomous building. When a whole bunch of termites build a mound, they don't set out with an idea of a mound. There's no mastermind. There's no plan. Instead, one termite sets down a ball of dirt, and another termite sets down a ball of dirt next to it, and those balls of dirt start to to build up into little walls that are kind of frilly at first, and then they become hard-packed as the termites 
kind of sculpt them after they've after they've built them. So the question is, how could we do that? If we could if we could make robots that could build in difficult and unfamiliar environments, we could, for example, send a robot into the Fukushima reactor in Japan and and wall off where the radiation is, or wall send a, a bunch of robots in to wall off where the radiation is or or where the radioactive water is starting to breach. You could send them to Mars, or you could send them to war zones in in unfamiliar places, and they could build a shelter for for people or for robots. So that's one thing. Another thing is that you could design robots that could swarm and that could gather information as a group Mm -hmm. and come back to a central point or somehow communicate with each other so that that information disseminates throughout the whole group and decisions can be made. That could be very useful for everything from, you know, cleaning swimming pool filters to software for computer networks to routing phone calls to you know, to obviously the military could use it. So these ideas are, are they're very big kind of ideas in complexity science and, and being able to study termites as a model, but not a model and an inspiration, but not actually a direct kind of one-to-one correlation is important. They've spent years and years doing this. I started following them around. I start, I think I first talked to Radica in 2010 and have continued to stay in touch with them. Here's a, a one-to-one possible use of termites that I have to ask about since eating insects is sort of one of these ideas of the future. Are they edible? Oh, they sure are. In fact, the, well, the alates are edible, and that's, so that's the sexual reproductive. Every year or several times a year, depending, termites burst out of their a colony, their mound, their wherever they they might be underground, they might be in the side of your garage, or they could be uh, in a tree if they're in South America. They burst out on sort of a damp day usually, and they're, they're these are the winged reproductive that are bigger than the other termites, and they're also fattier. They're they're significantly bigger. They might be like five times bigger, and they're kind of fatty. And they they try to sort of take off and fly. They're Wings are really insubstantial. Sometimes they go just like a foot or two. Sometimes they go three feet. Sometimes they go 30 feet. Sometimes they, you know, get caught by a little puff of wind. You know, they glide for a while. And then they land and they they mate. But what happens is like more than 99.99% of them are eaten by other animals, including birds and aardvarks and stripy echidnas and all kinds of wonderful animals eat them, but also humans eat them, and there's a and and also um, chimpanzees eat them. And there's a thought, uh, there's or at least there's at least one paper that uh, suggests that you know possibly the process of fishing termites, fertile termites, out of mounds and eating them gave early prehumans a shot of a more complex carbon and and fat and protein that allowed our our brains to grow. So. So in a sense, you could blame humans on termites, but you'd be going too far. (laughs) All right. Here's another very human-centric question, which is, I'm curious. I also wrote a piece for The Atlantic about 10 years ago on bedbugs, which were fascinating to me until, of course, I subsequently got bedbugs. I don't know if I cursed them on myself by having written about them. And that somewhat cooled my fascination and interest with those creatures. And I'm curious, have you ever gotten termites and how did that affect your own approach? Yeah, I did get termites. My termite obsession sort of started in 2008 and I lived in an apartment in Berkeley, California. And 
termites had eaten away the whole wall behind my bed and including all the supporting beams. The whole framework of the place where I was living on the bottom floor was just this sort of lacy cardboard-like stuff. And then I thought that was, that was kind of funny because, you know, everybody else who thinks about termites is all concerned about them eating your house. And I, I was like actually kind of enthusiastic that I'd found them behind the, <laughs> behind the bed, like, oh, amazing, look at them. And then at the same time, I realized I'd kind of gotten into a weird termite space where I was fascinated by them intellectually and, you know, wasn't quite seeing them entirely as the bugs that everybody else sees them as. Well, clearly you have your own point of view on termites. Lisa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Lisa Marganelli's book is called Underbug, an obsessive tale of termites and technology, which our reviewer described as mesmerizing in the book review this week. Alexander Alter is not with us this week, unfortunately, but we do have John Williams joining us now to talk about a little bit of news out there. So this has been a very busy week in book world. We've had, of course, the man booker shortlist announced, and then there was something kind of surprising that happened at another publication. Yeah, this was fairly late breaking and kind of quickly developing news that started last week when Ian Baruma, the editor at the New York Review of Books, was under fire for publishing an essay by a man named Gian Gomeshi. He was a radio broadcaster in Canada, quite popular up there, had a show where he interviewed musicians and they played songs. And he was accused a couple of years back of sexual assault by several women. And he was acquitted of charges in 2016. More than 20 women. Yeah, more than 20 women eventually came forward. I'm not sure that those were all official charges in court, but several, I think, accused him legally. And he was acquitted of the charges. And now it being a couple of years later, he had an essay in the New York Review of Books, this very sort of august and literary and very left-leaning magazine about how he's felt like a pariah since he was charged and how no one will speak to him in public and he's been cast out and can't find the same kind of work, et cetera. And people online thought that it was kind of self-pitying. They wondered about the judgment of having him write the piece. And then this week, Baruma was, it appears, asked to resign as the editor of the New York Review of Books. An interview that Baruma gave with another publication, the online magazine Slate, was also kind of instrumental in this process. What happened there? Yeah, it's hard to know exactly, obviously, the dominoes that fell, but I think that was very instrumental because on late last week, very quickly after all of this had broken, he talked to Isaac Chotner, a reporter at Slate, and was asked essentially his thought process behind the piece. And he, according to social media and people who reacted there, he didn't come across well. And one of the things he said when when pressed about the charges that had been levied against Gomesh, he said, I'm no judge of the rights and wrongs of every allegation. How can I be? And then he said later, the exact nature of his behavior, how much consent was involved, I have no idea, nor is it really my concern. You profiled Ian Baruma when he took over the New York Review of Books from the long-standing editor, Bob Silver after his death. And of course, he's his co-editor for a long time, Barbara Epstein. Right. Silvers had died earlier in 2017. And there was a little bit of a, a period where they didn't have an editor. And then Baruma, I think, officially took over after Labor Day. So it's been about exactly a year that he was at the helm of the magazine. Oh, wow. And had he brought changes to the magazine? Was this an outlier in terms of what he had done there? You know, when I talked to him, he made sounds about making changes. I wouldn't say that the, that he made any radical changes. The design of the, the very retro design of the publication hadn't really changed. A lot of the contributors seemed to be the same. If there were going to be more major changes, I think they would have maybe shown up over a longer period of time. But I don't think anyone thought of it as a sea change, really. But this 
I think stood out for for several reasons. I mean, Gomeshi is not a very literary figure. So Mm -hmm. in this magazine, it was a little curious why he would have a platform like this. And also the several people mentioned that it doesn't really publish these kinds of personal essays a lot. It's Mm -hmm. a very circumspect magazine, a lot about sort of scholarly subjects and political subjects, high literary subjects. So this kind of very conversational self analysis isn't really part of its usual package. And I think that's partly why this stood out so strongly. And the New York Review is owned by a family, right? The Hattermans and with Ray Hatterman as its publisher. Yeah, it's published by Ray Hatterman. Do we have a sense of what happened? Was he fired? Did he resign? We don't. I think from the reporting that the Times has done, it seems fairly clear that he was asked to resign and Mm -hmm. then resigned. So I I would, you know, I would say most people would think of that as being fired. So, but we don't know much about the behind the scenes machinations yet, but. Has Baruma made any statement about what's taken place? Um, He has briefly. There's this morning now being reported that he was born in the Netherlands and he apparently spoke to a Dutch outlet and he said in part that he had been, quote, convicted on Twitter without any due process. He also said that university presses who advertise in the New York Review, he claims that they were threatening to boycott because they feared adverse campus reactions to the Gomeshi piece, which is interesting because there are other rumors that, you know, university presses were threatening to boycott just simply over the piece. And so he's trying to position it as they're worried about overly sensitive people, whereas I think other people say, well, they were just worried about their own feelings about the piece. All right. Well, lots of foot at the NYRB, as they call it, not to be confused with the NYTBR. No, no, not at all, please. Which occasionally happens, alas. John, thank you so much. Thanks, Pamela. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, we've got Greg Coles, Tina Jordan, and John Williams. Hi, guys. Hey, Hey. Pamela. All right, Greg, you've got something other than Ulysses. I do. You know, I'm I'm still reading Ulysses, as I mentioned last week, but it it has a little bit of the whiff of required reading to it. And um, we're in awards season, which means that we're also in the season of the Best American anthologies that come out every year in October. So we've got Best American Essays and Best American Short Stories. And one of the books that was added to that anthology probably 10 years or maybe 20 years ago now is the... <laughs> I, think somewhere I still think of it as like the new one. Yeah. It's and, somewhere in between that, I think. It's, it's not 20. That would be... <laughs> <laughs> McSweeney's, uh, which has since dropped it and released it to the series overall, initiated this Best American Non-Required Reading Anthology every year, which is still assembled um, with a guest editor, but a panel of high school students going through and picking kind of the stuff that spoke to them over the previous year. Is and this through 826, the yeah, nonprofit exactly organization right, that yes. Dave Eggers founded? Exactly. So it's it's part of this 826 literacy project. And I don't always read the Best American Non-Required Reading. Well, uh, it's not required. required. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> you set us up there. <laughs> it, it sometimes just feels like it's not my generation, um, but it, it also has something that's really appealing. When I'm not reading Ulysses or reading for work, or I, I'm often kind of reading social media and discovering things to read on social media, and that's what Best American Non-Required Reading feels like. And Sheila Hetty is the guest editor this year, and she makes that point in her introduction, or one of the panelists does, because she turns it over to a transcript of the panelists talking, that there's there's something that feels very much like 
these are the things that you would discover through um, social media if you followed cooler people than I follow. <laughs> or if you didn't spend your entire life on social media, you can now. <laughs> yeah, well, now, now you can read it in a book and call it literature. There are, in fact, ex excerpts in here from Instagram feeds, from, you know, oh, wow. um, as well as some of the stuff that turns up in the other mm -hmm. kind of glossier um, outlets. There's the Kristen Rapinian story, Cat Person, that was ran in The New Yorker and became a viral yeah, sensation. Yeah, I didn't hear anything about that on social media. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is here. Um, so not required reading, but, you know, that that's just one indication of this is the stuff that kind of speaks to a younger generation. It's good to check in on that every now and then. Greg, what, where did you stand on Cat Person? I really liked Cat Person. I liked the kind of emotional nuance of it. I, I thought that it it reminded me a little bit of the um, Ian McEwan's um, Chesil Beach, which is, you know, just mm -hmm. an argument between two people who really, you know, like each other, but it, it kind of the psychological, the, bringing their own baggage to the relationship. And that's what Cat Person was to me. It was two people with a lot of baggage, obviously not in a, a committed relationship. That was a, kind of a one night stalkery stand kind of thing. That she just also did interior monologue just so well. Yeah. I, and it, it just peeled away the the layers of what's going on, what you bring to your encounters with somebody else. So, you know, forget the writing, forget the subject matter. I just thought that it did a, a very good job of kind of going psychologically deep, which is something that, that I look for in, in my writing. Tino, how about you? What are you reading? So I was at the library last weekend and I was on the thriller aisle and I was looking at the Fs and I saw a ton of French that I actually had not read before. And I couldn't quite believe it because I thought I'd read everything of hers, but I don't know what I was doing in 2010, but whatever, I missed this book. It's called Faithful Place and it's not a standalone. It's one of the linked stories. If you read ton of French, you know that often a small character in one book becomes a big character in the next. So I do remember the character from who's the main character in this book. He's an undercover cop in Dublin named Frank Mackey, who over two decades ago turned his back on his very quarrelsome family. One night, he was set to run away to England with his girlfriend. He was 17 or 18 years old. She never showed. And... He didn't go back home. He just ran away and, like, started his life then and has never been in touch with his family. And then he gets a call that his girlfriend's suitcase has been found in the abandoned building where they all hung out all the time. In it, her passport, their ferry tickets, the works. So what's happened to her? And so he's got he's back in touch with his family for the first time in decades and they're a quarrelsome, difficult, drunken bunch. As he says at the beginning, personally, I would have bet that one of them would have come to a bad end by now. You know, his bet may pay off know. later <laughs> in the book. So it's a really kind of, other than the mystery of the of the disappeared girlfriend, it's one of those books that just sort of peels back the facade a person builds. Like Frank Mackey had sort of embroidered this life for himself, you know? He hadn't talked to his family, so he created this other thing. And now it's sort of unraveling, and he's having to confront who he really is. And I know that sounds trite, but the book is great. You're finished with it? I'm finished. So good. And the mystery pays off big, obviously. The mystery pays off really big, but also in a really heartbreaking way. Hmm. Sounds great. 
I'm reading three or four things at a time, which is something I almost never did when I was younger, but I find myself doing more as I get older. But I'm just going to focus on one thing, which is a very short novel. It's 150 pages exactly called Shyness and Dignity by the Norwegian writer Dag Solstad, S-O-L-S-T-A-D. The reason I know about this book is because a few weeks ago, Charles Finch, who writes for the book review with some frequency, really smart critic, reviewed two new books in translation by the same writer. And he was very interesting on those and he made me want to read them. But he basically said explicitly that the book to read by this guy is not those two, but what he called his masterpiece, this one, Shyness and Dignity. And it's about a Norwegian high school teacher who wakes up on a gray October day in Oslo and goes in to teach his class about this Ibsen play. And the first... 35 pages or so is this monologue or interior monologue about how he's frustrated by the student's own lack of interest, how his own insights into the play seem to be lost on them, but why that makes sense. And then he kind of has this freak out in front of a bunch of students because his umbrella breaks and he just has all this <laughs> pent up tension and he kind of goes nuts and then he finds himself wandering around Oslo having just thoughts about his life and where it all went wrong. He's a middle-aged <laughs> guy. And I'm really loving it so far. I'm about halfway through. And there's this one great moment, I think, that sums up the the part about where he's in the classroom and he's just inside of himself looking at these kids. And the kids, you know, he describes their youthful, self-righteous groan, their suppressed groan. They just don't care. And he's trying to get them to. And he says, and he says that this is right, that this is the right state of affairs and that he can't really tell them that he can't bring his full authority to them and say, shut up and listen, and this is worth your while. And he says, he could certainly allow himself to nettle them with his exemplary teaching, but he could not provoke them so deeply that they would rise in protest and tell him they were not going to put up with it any longer. He feared the moment they would stand up, slam their desks and demand respect for their worth, because then he would be helpless. For it was beyond doubt, after all, in view of the existing circumstances, that they were the ones who were right and he was wrong. His teaching did not measure up because the assumptions he started from did not apply to them. And it was only a question of time, he feared, until it would be equally clear to everyone that his mission, already today quite painful, would be made superfluous. And then he looks at his watch and then he goes to the teacher's lounge and he freaks out. Um, <laughs> this so there's this great a little tension bit, between him and the younger generation. A little bit like me reading Best American Non-Required. A lot like that, actually. <laughs> yeah, circle back to that. Pamela, I think you're juggling a lot of different things, too. What are you going to talk about this week? Well, I'll talk about two nonfiction books that I've read recently. I've been doing quite a bit of traveling in the last month. I think I was out of the country more than I was in. I'm just back from... Greece, mostly Athens for work, where the Times had a conference on democracy, and before that uh, was in Germany on vacation. So I'm going to talk about one book from each trip. <laughs> Given the subject of democracy of this later trip, I decided to bring along a copy of Bob Woodward's Fear. And, you know, I wasn't sure if I was going to read it because similarly with Michael Wolf, it's been written about so much that sometimes you think, well, I've, I've read around it. I, I've got all the juicy bits. I don't need to go further. But I did find with uh, Fire and Fury that it was actually worth it to read the book itself. And I thought that might be the case with the Woodward. I definitely agree with Dwight Garner's critical assessment of the book and that it, it feels largely unedited. But the advantage to that in an odd way, in its sort of sheer repetitiveness and lack of organization, is that that kind of seems to encompass what's going on in the White House itself. So you almost become, it's almost an immersive experience hmm. where you're like, wait a minute, they're having that dispute again, like they've already had that trade discussion. And you already had, you know, people swiping things off the desk and, and the other thing that I think made it worthwhile is whereas Fire and Fury, uh, of course, came out now nearly a year ago, focused on the kind of sheer 
you know, disorganization and emotional chaos of uh, of the White House during its first months. This book focuses more on how that chaos plays out in the day-to-day attempt to formulate and enact policy. And so, you know, some people have noted that it's it's very focused on various issues in foreign affairs and trade. And that sounds kind of boring, but it it is fascinating to see the kind of dysfunction that Woodward describes. It's hard to think of two writers who have more different tones and methods of operation than Michael Wolff and Bob Woodward. Yes, so that's, yes. That's um, and Wolf was, you know, Wolf is, is is more of a stylist, um, a little more flamboyant, more fun to read. <laughs> Woodward, of course, you'd feel like you're getting something that might be somewhat more factually accurate. Um, <laughs> and, um, and yet they both tell the same story. Right. Well, it's interesting, not entirely, because Woodward's carries out a little bit further down the timeline, of course. And also, I think that Woodward is is genuinely interested in how does the government function in this atmosphere? You know, this is not a book about, oh, it's Jared versus uh, Steve Bannon versus Rince Priebus versus Ivanka. That's not really what Woodward is interested in. It, he's more interested in that Trump will often agree with the last person who comes in to talk to him and then will often contradict himself and what it's like to actually try to work in an atmosphere like that where you have just a, a sort of constant chaos and you will think that you have managed to persuade him of something only to find out that, you know, the very next day you're back at ground zero and you have to start all over again trying to persuade him, you know, to do something or not to do something. So everyone wants to be the last person on his schedule for the day. <laughs> yes, yes, basically. And then and then hope that, you know, action is taken or not taken um, as a result. So that was in direct contrast to a book that I read for pleasure when I was in Germany, which was a memoir that came out earlier this year by a woman named Christy Watson, who is a novelist in the UK. But this was a more of a memoir and a general book about what it's like to be a nurse. It's called The Language of Kindness. And she was a nurse for 20 years before she became a full-time writer. And part of it is about her own personal story and how she became a nurse with relatively little training early on and then her kind of initiation into nursing and then a larger attempt to kind of describe the origins of nursing and how it functions in the UK. But I just found it, and Tina, I think you read it too. I did. I found it totally fascinating in the same way that Studs Terkel's working is fascinating and that it's a window into a world that I really didn't know anything about. I've read a lot of books about doctors and, and medicine, but none from the perspective of a nurse. And it, it, just to get people curious, it's, you know, she tells you sort of what it means when the nurse says X, like what the nurse is really saying, you know, I don't know and if I want to know that <laughs> it's a little scary, <laughs> no. but there's a lot of, there's a lot of emotion and humanity to the book. Right. I, I, I found myself in tears or near tears on several occasions while reading it. Did you have that same? I did. And, and, and she's a Costa award-winning novelist and to have somebody who's so good with words describing these very emotional scenes in the hospital where people are very ill or dying. It's tough. And it's interesting, too, to find out like how an ER nurse is different from a surgical nurse and how a surgical nurse is different from someone who works in the oncology ward versus someone who works in the NICU for premature babies. Mm -hmm. And 
her specialty for most of the her career was with children, which she says, you know, people thought, wouldn't that be depressing and upsetting? But she actually argues the contrary. One story that I found really interesting, she says that in her 20 years of experience as a nurse, only on two occasions were sort of a support team was sent in to help the nurses deal with a traumatizing situation, even though they're dealing with life and death and everything in between kind of trauma every single day. On one occasion, it was in what they call the surgical theater operating room in the UK when this large machine, I forget what it's called, that kind of pumps the blood in and out of a body. It's an important machine. In surgery. Well, it's some kind of mechanical machine. It exploded and oh blood was suddenly, oh the entire room was drenched in blood and everyone in it. And so, you know. It's like a ton of French novel. Yeah. They, they called in social workers and psychiatrists to help the staff get over that incident. Oh and the other one was when one of the nurses had to bring a grieving family down to like the internal hospital morgue to see their recently dead family member. And she opened up the drawer and apparently the the refrigeration machine had broken. And so the body had decomposed. And so (laughs) there in front of the whole family, you know, they pulled it open and it was like this ghastly, you know, scene of decomposition. So then again, they they called in, (laughs) they called in the troops. I don't know. What did you take away from it? I, I think what I took away from it most is really understanding that while nurses are doing basically the 24-7 tending of patients and their physical needs, they're also meeting patients' emotional needs Mm -hmm. in a way that I hadn't recognized. I mean, it's... You have to have compassion if you're a nurse. I mean, you know, she says the doctor comes in at 6 a.m. and he's out the door at 6.07. Like, and... Patients are really sick. And they're the ones that are there. And they're the ones who are there. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it, I, for me, it, it gave me even more respect for nursing same. as a profession in the same way that, you know, teaching. And you think, why are these two, you know, professions, why are the people not paid more and given more respect? That's where I left it. I mean, th- those people and, and, and book review editors. Right? Yeah, right. I was going to say, my sister's a nurse practitioner. I'm pretty sure she makes more money than I do. <laughs> All right, Tina, take that up with the boss. I will. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back. The Book Review Podcast is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with the great help of my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.